Hello and welcome to the August 2021 edition of No Diagnostic Required, a monthly look at what's happening in the C++ community. With me, Phil Nash, and my co-host, Anastasia Kezakova. So how are you doing this month? I'm doing good, actually. No, I'm just, it's quite late here in St. Petersburg, and I'm just from the London Theatre. While I'm still in St. Petersburg, (laughs) so no travel involved. So even though no diagnostic required, but I will try to explain myself, Um, like in this pandemic time, this is actually a great thing, which you can go to the cinema and watch the like drama recorded in some theatre, for example, in London, which I just did. So I was happily looking at Cyrano de Bergerac and it was great. So I feel like I'm just from London. <laughs> so a little bit closer to where you are now, Phil. <laughs> so yeah, how are you this month? Uh, well, I actually am well, very close to, to London, but uh, <laughs> that's just because that's where I happen to live. No, I'm good. I'm good. Bit, bit of a shame that the, the summer seems to be ending prematurely here in the UK, but there'll be another year, I'm sure. <laughs> yeah, hopefully. <laughs> Now, before we get into it, I just wanted to make a little correction to to last month's episode when we talked about stood execution. Uh, I said, um, and this was just on the recorded show, not in the uh, the written material on C++ annotated, I actually said that it was like a stripped back, lean and mean, minimum viable executors. But I actually realised afterwards that that wasn't really the case. In fact, it's quite misleading. So... When I did write it up in C++ annotated, I actually just pointed out that it was actually a larger paper than executors with obviously a different focus. So uh, I just wanted to to correct that and use that as a, an example of how what we're doing here, it's just our opinions, our interpretations, and sometimes even a hot take. So do bear that in mind uh, when, you, when you listen to what we have to say. With that in mind, let's get into the, uh, the, the material we've got for for today. So do you want to take us through this um, uh, No Unique Address article? Yeah, actually, it's both about the No Unique Address and Empty Base Class Optimization on its own. Uh, so it's the article talks about this new C20 attribute in the context of the Empty Base Class Optimization. So if you don't know, this optimization allows saving the memory on uh, empty structs via inheritance. So and the idea is that um, if you know that your class is empty, then you can inherit from that class and the compiler like won't enlarge the derived class. So, and now there is this new attribute in C20 called no unique address to help you with the, actually the same thing, just in the language. So a new attribute indicates that a unique address is not required for a non-static data member of a class. Uh, so actually it doesn't. Uh, it just does the same job. Um, so, and the compiler may optimize uh, the space, actually, the memory. And interestingly, like in the article itself, so you can find uh, um, like a few useful examples how this could be used in some like practical examples. But it's interesting discussion that actually there in the end, which uh, kind of caught my eye, is about the ABI, which might be affected as the result of the usage of this attribute. And because this attribute actually changes the layout. Uh, and the, th- this is very interesting. In fact, I mean, like the community right now is quite actively discussing all these ABI questions. And, you know, I think we're kind of becoming very sensible in terms of the ABI questions. I don't know how about you, but I definitely feel the vibes in the community. So it's, it was interesting actually to uh, capture this idea. Uh, the situation was discussed in the GitHub issue 
for Microsoft Astel, uh, it was noticed there that Clank listed this attribute as supported in version 9, but it was not the case when the Clank was targeting Windows because MSVC didn't support the attribute. And Stephen Lavave actually started that um, the attribute is now supported in uh, MSVC, but it's too late to request Clank support to take advantage of it because of the API lockdown for C20. So that was actually an interesting consequence. Like, we have the feature implemented, but we actually can't rely on it because uh, of all these ABI um, questions. So that, yeah, that was actually what caught my eye in the article. But overall, it's um, a nice example of um, how the attribute can be useful. So do check out if you just have no idea or uh, haven't heard a lot about it. So it's kind of very useful. So, um, yeah, that's, uh, I guess, all I wanted to say about uh the point so any threads here from you phil yeah the the, the api aspect to it is is a bit unfortunate as, as it always is when it comes to api <laughs> issues uh, just another example of why we really need to do something about it uh, because you know we, we can't have it both ways at the moment but just the the feature itself and no unique address um nice simple thing that uh, addresses a, a need that we've been able to to work around before by abusing existing language features um, at the cost of making the, the code very obtuse and just, just harder to read and reason about and probably compile. Uh, now we have a feature that does exactly what we want, which is just to say, well, this particular member doesn't have a unique address um, because it, it's not needed and may very well be empty. So I think that I really like these features because we, we, we do tend to abuse the language a lot because we want to make it do things that it doesn't do. Uh, and that's what standardization is for. So when we can we can rely on the features when ABI is not getting in the way, uh, that, that's a really good thing. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's true. That's true. Okay, let's maybe move forward um, So and talk about this um, nice article by offer. So um, I think I can maybe even uh, stop on the article title here, you know, and say no more <laughs> because it speaks for itself. So don't explicitly instantiate the templates. That's the major outcome of the article, actually. But if yeah. we get into more details, so it's, yeah, it started with just uh, a similar rule, like not to forward declare standard library types, but then it gets um, the example that uh, let you help understand the further rules. So, and the major idea of the like um, whole case is that implicit instantiation is lazy and can only um, like instantiate the needed parts. So it will like uh, like skip the parts it doesn't need. So, um, and there is some nice example of this tract with two functions f and j, and j is not legal, but that's totally fine until you don't call it. So, and you only call the f function, but the explicit instantiation uh, actually does so for every member. So, and uh, the problem is that uh, like stood templates actually rely on this laziness. So, if you try to you know explicitly instantiate them, you might get in, into trouble. And uh, there was a very interesting observation again in the end. I know, like there. All interesting observations are actually in the end, I know that. But um, there is some rule recommended by the standard itself regarding the explicit instantiation, which kind of is kind of contradictory. So, and it says that the program may explicitly instantiate a class template defined in the standard library, 
only if the declaration depends on the name of at least one program-defined type or the instantiation meets the standard library requirements for the original template. But the author actually says that you'd better not follow this standard advice mm -hmm. and like stay a little bit away because of the reasons mentioned earlier. So, and yeah, for the Clang users, there is kind of workaround. There is this... Um, compiler-specific attribute, something like exclude from explicit instantiation, which you can actually use uh, to avoid these kind of problems, but it's only Clang, so uh, there is nothing in GCC like that. Um, so yeah, and that that's an interesting um, article, I would say, an interesting observation there, so do check the examples if you would like to like get into more details. But yeah, everything is in the title, so just learn that do not explicitly instantiate to templates, that's it. Uh, so yep. you can stop here. <laughs> yeah, uh, Arthur's uh, articles, as always, are um, informative, insightful, and, and well-written. Uh, this is no exception. That's true. <laughs> yeah, but the, the one thing I felt was uh, perhaps missing was explanation of why you might want to explicitly instantiate uh, a stood template, or any template, in fact. And I think part of the problem is there's really two reasons, and they are almost orthogonal to each other, although there is some crossover. One is when we do actually want it to instantiate all of its members, all of its um, dependent members. Uh, so exactly the thing that causes the problem here. Uh, the other is perhaps for compile time performance purposes. If you, you have a an expensive type, you may want to instantiate it. And especially if you can combine that with um, what's now being standardized as uh, extern template, but for many years was available as an extension, at least with the, the Microsoft compiler. Uh, you can actually then instantiate it in an, uh, a CPP file uh, and, and extern it in a header file. And you won't pay the cost of instantiation every time you use it then. Uh, I've actually used that trick uh, before. Now, I'm not sure that you would really want to do that with a, a, a std type. So I'm not really sure why people want to do that with, with std templates anyway, but it can actually be useful in your own in your own code. But I just felt that was sort of missing from the discussion a bit. Yeah, I guess Arthur was actually noticing that it's not a very, you know, popular case anyway. Mm. So it's not the yeah. thing you do regularly, but still you have, you'd better be aware of why it's bad <laughs> yeah. than not just using it silently, you know. Yeah. Whereas forward declaring standard types can actually be quite tempting. Uh, again, mostly yeah. for performance purposes, uh, compile time performance purposes. Uh, and I believe the uh, the doc test framework actually uses that trick uh, fairly extensively to to get its uh, compile times down. Obviously, uh, at the cost of invoking undefined behavior. But if you <laughs> do that on a implementation by implementation basis, you can get away with it. But in general, follow up as advice and, and just don't do it. Yeah, that's true. Okay, what about modules then? Got a bit of news on, on modules this month. Yeah, I would say that like modulus related topics are hot these days, so oh. they're very, very popular. But uh, like I would say there is a lack of good practical tutorials. So the people are more still discussing how the feature is structured in the language, what we're still struggling for in terms of the compiler support or project model support. So surprisingly, in August, I noticed two blog posts with quite a practical approach to the thing. Uh, 
So the first one is um, this one about the models with surprisingly GCC 11. So I was first a little bit surprised because to me, the models is like the thing which is supported in um, MSVC plus MSBuild. But like with GCC 11, what do I use as a project model? And the answer was uh, actually very simple. No product project model mm -hmm. at all is involved in the blog post. So don't worry yeah. about that. So it's just a compiler thing. But um, it's related to GCC 11 mostly because the offer actually discusses how the things are different from the Microsoft implementation. There are a few places like that. So in general, the article discusses the like C++ 20 modules and uh, focusing on two different approaches uh, of organizing the model structure, like the single file models or like separate interface and implementation files. And so there are just quite basic examples compiled by GCC 11. So you can follow them if you would like to start with the model. Uh, and as I mentioned, there are a few differences discussed in the article um, between the GCC 11 and Microsoft implementation. So you can check them. For example, uh, there is this discussion about no agreement on file name extensions, uh, at least no common agreement. So um, I would say there is a little bit of a mess there with the standard exception uh, extensions, but like, yeah, you, you can still deal with that. Um, and also some details like uh, private fragments, which are not supported by GCC 11, uh, at least for now. So um, anyway, the blog post is a good start if you would like, you know, just to write some model and play with it. And GCC 11 now supports the model, so everything is fine, except for the fact that the blog post doesn't really help with the modularization of the current code base. So if I have already a code base, which I would like to uh, convert to modulus, this is like kind of basic thing, but it's all anyway good to read through it. And so there's such questions covered like how to build a simple model, how to export a function and namespace and type, import things and build everything together. So yeah, everything is just discussed there. So you can learn these kind of C++ 20 models basics and write a new model. But if you would like to modularize, modularize um, an existing code base, I would recommend you check in the next blog post from um, Microsoft. And it's about uh, moving a project to C++ named models. And it's exactly what I said. So it takes the uh, project without models. So the existing code base, it's actually located on a GitHub. So you can play with this application, play with this example. And it shows how you can introduce models, models into that. So it's kind of a little bit straightforward, especially in the beginning, because they just mimic the um, header structures. So they just take this um, uh, inheritance tree with the headers um, located in the project and then just convert all the headers into the corresponding models with very little changes, I would say, just required to make the models correct. So the hierarchy is actually preserved and everything just converted to models following this hierarchy, but it's kind of nicely referred in advance. So it actually allows that. I'm not sure every project actually follows this, you know, nicely structured way of, uh, you know, <laughs> presenting the libraries. But if you lucky one if you have then the conversion will be quite uh, easy the interesting question discussed later is um, how you convert to model is the third party code and there is some non-trivial task uh, which you might have um, 
which you might require at this point, like uh, they discuss how the static constants have to be wrapped with functions to import later because the internal linkage uh, entity can't be exported. So the things like that is discussed there. So you, that you have to actually update the code you have to introduce models and surprisingly there is uh, i would say a fantastic compilation time improvement uh, stated in the article at least for their project there is like for one of the file they have like 3.5 something seconds without models and 0.15 with models so it's like uh, more than 20 times uh, improvement so it's, it's really great i don't think like we will be all happy like that with just you know <laughs> introducing models but who knows maybe like if you indeed have this very straightforward hierarchy of your headers and you just convert them mimicking the structure, then it's indeed will be that very straightforward and easy to convert into models. And yeah, so this is the blog post, which can help if you would like to introduce models into your existing code base. But you definitely first need, you know, to clean a little bit, make it more structured, maybe think about the, um, how um, separate the parts are so that they're, you know, not just mixed all together. And then, yeah, you can use this uh, tutorial. It's actually a tutorial by Microsoft Teams, so it definitely relies on uh, Microsoft implementation. Interestingly, the project on GitHub is in CMake, but since CMake still doesn't have support for C++20 models, the first step they do is actually generate the Amos build from the CMake and then proceed. So, yeah, that was a fun part, I would say. Um yeah, and I think that's uh, it. What I wanted to say about it. What do you think about these guidelines about these tutor two tutorials, Phil? Well, as we said before, modules are going to solve all of our problems. Uh, we we just need to to get there. Grass is definitely greener on the on the module side, <laughs> but the problems always, you know, how do we get from where we are now to that promised land of of modules, especially in these early days without the, the tooling support uh, being ubiquitous or or even well known. So these practical articles that sort of take existing code bases right now with the tools that we have right now and see what we can actually do, which in some cases might not be much, but if you do have some tooling support, <laughs> um, like the, the Microsoft uh, project model, then there are things we can do. And it's nice to, to see that actually laid out in a, in a real world way. In terms of the, the build time improvements, uh, I can actually believe those figures that, uh, that are quoted there. Um, I'm not sure if I mentioned this before, so I know we have talked about modules performance before, but a uh, previous project I worked on when we were using Visual Studio, uh, it's quite a large uh, code base uh, split across, across about 40 uh, DLL projects, I think. And what we found was uh, if we compiled a, uh, a pre-compiled header right at the start and then shared that between the projects, we got our build times down from about from over an hour to under 10 minutes. The problem was that wasn't actually a supportive way of doing things and we ran into problems with uh, the debugger and we ended up having to <laughs> undo it all. But it, it showed the potential for what, what can happen if you, you can share in a granular enough way uh, those um, pre-compiled symbols. And it's never been guaranteed that we'd, we'd actually see that uh, with, with modules, but always been hopeful. So it's nice to see some figures actually bearing out similar sorts of uh, uh, improvements there. So, yeah, I'm I'm hopeful that in at least in some cases <laughs> that that will really be the case. Yeah. Okay, let's move on to 
the, the standards news section. And the first one I want to look at uh, this time, it's, uh, it's an unusual proposal. And it's unusual in that it's removing things. Um, and not just one one thing, but, but many, actually. But also unusual in that when you first read it, you think, why, why on earth would we want to do that? It seems to be going backwards. And this was actually picked up on uh, CPB Cast a couple of weeks ago. And they had the same reaction. And you can read the title and you can even read into it a bit and, and still have that reaction. But I think if you dig a bit deeper, you do actually start to see where this is all coming from. And with, with some prompting by um, a colleague of mine, uh, Tomasz Kaminski, uh, now to Sonosource, uh, encouraged me to actually look into this properly. I've now come round to, I think, agreeing with uh, Vile, the, uh, the author of this paper, uh, and, and the others that were on the thread on the, the uh, committee mailer that, uh, that led to this. So it's worth just spending a little bit of time picking this apart, because I, I think it's quite important, actually. So, first of all, what are we talking about here? Hopefully, most people are familiar with no discard, but in case not, it's uh, an attribute introduced in C++ 17 that you can uh, mark up return types on, on functions with, either at the function level or on the type itself. So you can, you can do it either way. In fact, it was extended in C++ 20 to include a, uh, an extra string that explains why these types shouldn't be discarded. And they're for those cases where you, as the owner of this uh, function or type, really think that if you don't actually use that the return value, you're probably doing something wrong. It's almost certainly going to be a bug. Or, or it may just be not, not a very good way of dealing with things. For example, if the, the return type is an error code, uh, probably you should be looking at that because otherwise you may run into problems and, and not know what's going, going wrong. If it's a what we might call a pure function, so all it does is take its inputs, do some sort of computation and return result based on that. If you're not actually using that result, then why are you calling the function? probably indicates that you've misunderstood what the function does or again you've just uh, introduced a bug somewhere so it almost always indicates a bug and when you do get that bug they're often very hard to track down so this seems like a really great feature you can now put in something that will say no don't actually discard this return value and if you do it's probably a bug and compilers can do something with that but they're not required to uh, in fact, this is one of those cases where there is no diagnostic required. We like that phrase here. But this starts to get at the one of the issues with, with this. So what then happened is, so it's introduced in C++17, but more recently there's been a push to start to use this throughout the standard library. Uh, and so there have been a number of proposals that have, have put it into the... Um, at the standard library already. Some of these have already been adopted. Some of them are still going through the process. They all seem like a great idea. We talked about one of them back in May, I think. Uh, and we said, yeah, great. That's what we want. But remember, compilers are not required to, to give a diagnostic. So this may actually do nothing. But they also are not required to, to have it specified in the standard in order to put it in. In other words, a standard library uh, author can put no discard wherever they want. That's fine as well. That's completely conforming. So you don't actually need it to be specified. Um, and you don't even need to put no discard in 
in order for a compiler or some other tool like a linter to issue a diagnostic. So really weakening the case for why we actually need this to be specified in the standard. Uh, in fact, the paper actually says that they specify nothing, so it's questionable to put them into a specification. But that's quite a nice turn of phrase. Okay, at this point, as I was reading, I was thinking, well, I can sort of see where, where that's coming from, but surely still it's better to have it in the standard so that we, we get more of them. But then, then we go on. First of all, actually anyone potentially can submit patches or pull requests to any of the standard libraries to add these directly into the code without having to go through the standardization process. And that process of standardization is quite expensive. We spend a lot of committee time going through the paper, going through wording, adding it to um, the, the document itself. And then there's the chance of false positives if we put it in the wrong place. And some of them seem obvious, but some of them not so much. Plus they introduce extra verbosity in the code. There's a cost to this, and it seems very little benefit. We also like to standardize existing practice. So surely the best way to do it, given that we can just put it into the standard libraries, is to put it in the standard libraries and then decide whether we want to put it into the standard itself later. And then we get the, the best of both worlds. Okay, that almost seals the deal. But for me, the thing that really sealed it was, is this even the best approach? There are other approaches, such as specifying that um, whole classes of function, if you like, like all the empty functions, for example, which is one of the, the, the classic cases uh, where it could be confusing. There should be implicitly no discard. We can say that in the standard. That's something you can put into the standard. And that means you don't have to clutter up all of the, the code with no discard. It just automatically is effectively no discard. Uh, and there may be even other uh, things that we can do, uh, even at some future point, making something like no discard the default and having to opt out with something like discardable. And that sounds like the sort of thing that no, we'd, we'd never get that. But bear in mind, you can already get that behavior now in most compilers with a flag. I think uh, the unused flag, you'll, you'll get warnings if you ignore any return value. So maybe introducing the opposite attribute might be something we would look at in the future. That's being talked about at the moment. There's no serious proposals that I know of at the moment to do so. But that seems like a more promising approach. So actually, maybe we don't want to spend too much time going down this, this dead-end path. Uh, maybe we should concentrate the effort on a, a more general, more useful feature instead. So read it yourself if you're still not convinced and make sure you do actually you know, take on board each point because it, it, I think I find it quite insightful, the whole, pro whole process of getting from that's sort of a good thing to that's obviously not something we want to do, <laughs> which so often happens when, when it comes to uh, C++ standards. <laughs> so do you have any thoughts on that, Anastasia? Yeah, I'm just, you know, um, thinking about the fact that there is a standard library specification and there are standard libraries, which mm -hmm. we have more than one. Yeah. And the, the situation which I don't want to find myself in is then when everything is just different. <laughs> I mean, the specification and the implementation, that's the only situation I want to avoid. The others, like 
probably it's fine, but I'm just thinking about how much work still have to be done if we follow, for example, this path described here. So I don't know, maybe it's the, the people who are saying that it's too much work are right. I don't know. Um, the goal seems like fine, but again, maybe we can spend, you know, like trying to optimize the time of the committee and maybe they can spend time on something different. But um, I don't know. I'm not a, that good expert here. I'm just thinking about that. What I definitely don't want to lose is the fact that like I have the standard library specification and the actual standard libraries. Um, I don't want them to be different. I don't want the, thing, the people doing different things in the specification in the libraries themselves uh, because this is painful, not just for the tools we're working at, <laughs> but for all the developers. So you used the word behavior a moment ago. Uh, this attribute doesn't change behavior. Not of the code. It might change the behavior yeah, of the you're, 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 you're right, yeah. But, like... but actually, that's already different. That that was um, one of the first things I said was, is they're not required to do any of these things. So putting it into the standard doesn't actually change anything in practice. They're already mm -hmm. putting these into the uh, the implementations. They don't need the specification to say that they should and then have the option to ignore it. So... <laughs> Yeah, yeah, maybe it, you're it really right here. Change <laughs> yeah, maybe maybe you're right here. But like, you know, when you have a change which doesn't really change anything, then you have a question of should we really spend the time on it? But yeah, yeah re reasonable enough at least to discuss that. Yeah. And this certainly doesn't change the usefulness of using no discard in your own code. Uh, this is purely about whether it should be a specification exercise yeah. for the standard yeah. library. So yeah, it was an interesting one, I thought. Okay. Now, we spent quite a bit of time on that. Uh, I'm not going to spend quite so much time on these two. In fact, I think there was a third one as well. All to do with uh, std format and encodings, locale handling, uh, things to do with localization, basically, and, and Unicode in, in many cases. Um, there were a few of these that went in. And the reason I wanted to highlight them was partly because you know, we, we mentioned std format a lot. So it's a, it's a nice one to rally behind. But, you know, Mistakes have been made, things uh, have been uh, missed before, uh, which is fine because this is actually complex stuff. And that's really the point. Anything to do with uh, locales, encodings, Unicode, it's um, not only hard to get right, it's hard to remember when it's even, you even need to consider it. And I think, for example, in the, the Chrono case, there were two proposals being standardized at the same time that thought they had got the intersection right, and, and something got missed. And that, that's really hard. And it's great that this is now being fixed. It's been spotted. And there are people hard at work. I mean, um, Victor, the author of uh, Stood Format, who's been involved, uh, Peter Brett on there from uh, SG16, uh, and others from SG16, have really been hard at work trying to fix the big mess that is text encoding in C++. Uh, that's a massive job that we're not really going to see the full fruits of for probably not in 23, maybe in 26. Hopefully we'll get something more. But all these little paper cuts along the way, they're also trying to address. Uh, and it's largely sort of unsung work because there are no big features yet. But I just thought it was worth calling out the um, the, the work that's going on there to just, just trying to deal with this, this big mess. So <laughs> any thoughts on that? Um, 
Like not that many, actually. I'm just thinking about that. Simple Plus Twenty Three is indeed, a, you know, a release fixing the issues, and that's probably how it should be after the big Simple Plus Twenty. So, yeah, it's totally fine just to get all these things uh, for like for Krona and others actually to be um, actually accepted to Simple Plus Twenty Three. So, yeah. That's just like um, a normal process, I think. I don't think we, we need to change all the things with every release. So these fixes no. are nice, probably. No, that, that, that's right. Uh, but I think one of these, I forget which one now, didn't make a note of it, but I said to remember one of them did actually involve a, a slight ABI break. So, <laughs> <sighs> Yeah, you uh, know, but, the ABI vibes, as I said. <laughs> there was one we could roll with. That's the thing. There's not just one type of ABI break and some are bigger than others, but yeah, <laughs> gets in the way all the time. Yeah, probably, you know, probably we had more before, but we're now just more accurate with that. <laughs> we're, we're more aware of it. Yeah. 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 Okay. Uh, last month we talked about um, P2388R0. Uh, which at the time was called a bought-only contract support, I believe. Um, so R1 is out. It's got a different name now. Minimum contract support, either ignore or check and debort. So taking a cue, I think, from Arthur Dwyer's blog titles, <laughs> trying to put the uh, the whole message in the title. Uh, and in fact, that, that's um, the, the theme of this update. It doesn't really substantially change the uh, the, the content. It's, it's still saying the same thing. It's just a, a big reorganization of the, the proposal, taken on board lots of feedback that they've had, and does uh, substantially expanded. It's had, had wording now. So the, the reason I brought this up, even though there's not really having any changes to talk about of substance, is just to show that, yes, this is being worked on. It's being treated seriously. There's a lot of interest in it. Uh, and it looks like it may well be on track for C++23. So we, we may actually get minimal contract support in C plus plus twenty three, and I think that's that's a big thing. So worth cheering us on as it goes through. I think. Uh, anything else to say on that? Yeah, <laughs> let's get at least something. Yeah. Yeah, <laughs> I mean, yeah. If we can't get everything, let's get at least something. That's a good approach. I totally agree. So I think we need contracts, and mm. we need at least start standardizing uh, the things uh, we want there. So even though we can't get everything at once, and maybe that was too ambitious goal, you know, to get everything at once. Maybe this way, like getting it uh, to it step by step, will like at least improve, yeah. um, and will like yeah, indeed get something. <laughs> yeah, yeah, and certainly the the idea is that once this is in then we will start looking at those bigger, more controversial aspects to it, like continuation, undefined behavior, and so on. We will have those conversations, but they're not going to hold this up at this point. That's that's the main thing. Yeah, that's true. Okay, well, let's um, turn the page to look at tools now. So this is mostly back over to you again, Anastasia. Can you talk us through <laughs> yeah. Valgrind? Let's talk about the tools. Um, yeah, I actually picked that up and uh, some people might think that, aha, that's too old, but it's actually not. I think like Valgrind, uh, not just the MemCheck, but the whole tool is just great. I think like I was digging once in how it all written and it's a nicely 
uh, I would say, a nice piece of code, actually. So with a very nice architecture and how it all works. And as the article mentions, so it still can like knock down sanitizers in a few use cases. And the most obvious one is when you trying to catch issues in the library with the source code, uh, which is not accessible to you. So you don't have it and you can't actually recompile with sanitized flags. You maybe want to, but that's not the, uh, the option you have. So, uh, you definitely, the only thing you can do is run with the Valgrind. And, uh, so because you don't need a recompilation in case of the Valgrind. So, and it also can like help with some specific cases, like it can search for memory errors with address, um, which uh, like yeah, uh, some 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 address issues, and at the same time detect initialized memory, um, and that's not the two runs, but that's just you know you do that with well one Valgrin run, which is also great. But the biggest uh, benefit is probably that it's a very interesting piece of code, and it's actually a core. I mean, like it's not the tool which is capable of think one two three. It's actually a core part and a several. Um, how how they are called tool plugins uh which are working on top of that core like memcheck for example is just one there are also like uh others um uh maybe less known that the valgrind memcheck is probably the uh, most popular one but there are more and you can actually implement your own so you just get um this core part which just loads the software and disassembles it and then you can write a tool plugin or use one tool plugin existing in uh, the air which adds the instrumentation and assembles the everything back. So uh, yeah, it's an interesting article which just dives into how the uh, Valgrind works. Uh, it um, like um, actually like uh, like the CraftCPP um, blog for these nice pictures how the things are working. So you can uh, look at the Valgrind uh, architecture. It's actually indeed a very nice tool. So you can see how how it all um, works uh, for these things. Um, yeah, there are definitely some known limitations for the Valgrind um, discussed in the article, so you can't escape from them. For example, like the execution times and the memory usage, which are significantly higher uh, compared to the sanitizer's case. Everyone knows that, and like you can just you know uh, skip this fact. But if you don't have any other choice, like with this uh, library with uh, an accessible code, so that that that's fine. That's what you pay for getting the result. So. Um, yeah, uh, the article is just quite a basic overview of uh, what can be done with the Valkyrie and a few cases where it actually is more helpful than the sanitizers. So uh, even if you're, you know, a sanitizer fan, just do and check uh, out the article just to see um, these nice cases and just how it works. So yeah, I was actually using Valkyrie a lot uh, in the past while I was um, developing and I found it quite useful. And I really like how it, you know, um, introduces um, all the results to me and how I can check for these um, results. So, yeah, it's a nice tool. And I like, the, again, I quite like the fact that it's uh, a core plus tool plugin. So uh, thinking maybe about, you know, adding some functionality into it by adding this some kind of an extra plugin would be interesting at least to um, inspect this. So any first on that, Phil? Yeah, it's definitely a case of uh, you know know your tools, know what they're useful for, when to reach for the right one. Uh, and yeah. included in that is um, knowing what they're called. You mentioned that Valgrind is a, is quite an old tool now, but how many of us 
don't actually know how to pronounce the name. I know when I first did a video for it um, when I was at JetBrains on uh, integration with, with C-Line, actually I had to go and look up uh, how to pronounce it just to make sure that I said it right. <laughs> so it is Valgrind and not Valgrind, as, as many people do say. So <laughs> you heard it here first. <laughs> Yeah, I actually heard, uh, I guess, both options from the people, uh, but me, myself, I was mostly calling it uh, Valgrind all the time, and I was very much surprised when I heard Valgrind. I was thinking, like, maybe I'm doing that wrong. <laughs> um, but no, I used to the Valgrind name, so, and hopefully <laughs> I'm correct yeah. here. <laughs> um, okay, so more tools. We've got um, the uh, Intel compilers adopting LLVM. Yeah, I would say quite a big news announced by Intel uh, that they moved their compiler to the LVM infrastructure. So I would say like there are two, uh, like, sorry, three major compilers where all the time are talking about like Clang, GCC and MSVC. But Intel is also there. So it may be not, you know, in the top three most popular, but it definitely the compiler which the people um, tend to choose when they want the optimal performance for Intel uh, architecture. Because it's optimized exactly for Intel architectures. So uh, it makes sense to use this compiler in this case. And moving to LVM infrastructure um, is definitely a trend. Um, like, tell us, we know. <laughs> and it gives you the obvious benefits, like there is a huge community behind the LVM moving it forward. And so you actually, and it's open source, and you actually get the C++ language standards nearly for free. It's actually not that free. Um, but anyway, so if you migrate, you get this kind of features implemented, implemented for you by the whole community. So you're not there just alone with your battle. Um, there is this, um, when I said that it's not really for free, the thing is that, and I think that's what, uh, Intel plans to do is that they will, um, they're going to maintain their own branch just the same way as we do for like C-Line, where we do maintain our own um, LVM branch for ClangD. And so they're going to merge the most general things back, but they're not going to merge uh, some, you know, um, Intel architecture-specific things back. And that means that they will have these tough times when they need to, you know, uh, get the... Yeah new updates from the LVM. And I know what I'm talking about, so we do that yeah. <laughs> on a regular basis. And so it's sometimes quite painful. So it's not really for free. So you get many things there uh, just uh, because you update the, you know, the LVM version you are currently using, but it's not really free. So you still spend time on that. But anyway, that means that Intel LVM um, is now like capable of the things um, uh, which are available in LVM. So in terms of the C++ language standard supports, it's uh, quite, uh, should be quite nice. Um, and yeah, it still will be optimized for Intel architecture. And that's exactly the thing they're not gonna uh, push back. So, uh, and it seems that Intel LVM will still be a better choice for Intel architecture than the general LVM. And they have a few benchmarks in the article. I would say even more than few. So they have actually quite a lot, um, like um, some parts discussing these uh, benchmarks and the performance. And they also have, um, they actually recommend their users to migrate to a new compiler as soon as they're ready to, because they will move 
the old one to a legacy mode quite soon with like no updates so you'd better like migrate to this new uh, intel lvm and there is migration guide with the details published so like again you you won't be alone there so there is some help but yeah it's actually an interesting move i mean like um many ids are now moving uh to Clank uh, and especially to Clank D as a diamond, and uh, it's nice to see compilers moving to LVM. I wouldn't be like I think that was the thing mentioned also at CPP cast, if I'm not mistaken. Mm-hmm. But again, like I wouldn't be surprised if the Microsoft will also move there. We'll see. Who knows? Uh, it's definitely mm-hmm. tougher for them because they have the whole ecosystem of the Visual Studio also uh, using this uh, compiler infrastructure for parsing the code for doing all the stuff. So it's definitely not that easy. But it's it's an interesting move. I mean, LVM is, uh, it's not just a Clang compiler. It's much more now, like we have this Intel LVM. So yeah, in that sense, it's uh, big news. And uh, I would say news, uh, good news. So what do you think? So you mentioned uh, CPPcast uh, brought it up as well. And I know they were a bit concerned about losing another kind of major compiler implementation. Although obviously it's not the entire compiler. LLVM is a fairly low-level component of it. And, yeah, I do partially share that concern. You know, it is good to have multiple implementations. On the other hand, one of the, well, not maybe one of, but the key strength of LLVM is its modularity. So it's not just open as in open source, but it's open in terms of its architecture. It's designed specifically to be used uh, with all sorts of front ends and for all sorts of different purposes. Uh, And, yeah, this is yet another client of that really and in doing so that can only really improve llvm for everyone because even if they're not going to upstream all of their changes they've got to keep you know some of their proprietary stuff they're going to still be improving some of it particularly in the the, the area of uh, heterogeneous computing which is one of, one of their their strengths so i see it as a net positive even if there there are some downsides to it as well i think this is yeah a good direction overall yeah yeah agree so let's focus on c-line 2021.3 yeah so we talked about c-line release in july and uh, since that we published a blog post uh, talking about our roadmap for 2021.3 so the release coming um, somewhere in the end of november beginning of december so by the end of the year it should be there so and like our major focus is still unchanged, so it's performance and eliminating freezes, and we do a whole bunch of work in that direction. But there are a few interesting steps we're going to take to specifically simplify the initial and overall configuration of the IDE. So, um, like the first thing is that we plan to bundle the MinGW toolchain in CLine Installer for Windows. So that those who actually start with uh, CLine on Windows can do something just out of the box, you know, yeah. even like if they don't have every, anything else installed. So and then they don't have to, you know, go and manually install. And I mean, GW package is actually not that easy one. So you need to install like the CMake, the Make, the GCC and the like all these compilers. So you will spend some time going through all these packages and, you know, ticking the proper boxes. So uh, hopefully we can help. Um, 
And the next thing uh, would be the uh, ability to configure the toolchain environment via script. I guess a highly requested things from us. Uh, it's uh, quite useful if you use this script to initialize all the compiler environmental variables, uh, including like um, additions of the bin and leap paths. So it uh, might really help and hopefully we'll be able to bring this uh, into the upcoming release. Uh, we're also uh, trying right now to bundle Ninja and make it a default generator. So right now we're relying on the makefile generator as a default one. So, and I guess the Ninja is more like a standard one uh, right now in the community for CMake generator. Um, and yeah, the final thing I would like to mention here is for embedded audience. So those who are doing the embedded development, we finally plan to actually like finalize and release our ongoing work on custom compiler, which means that C-Line for now actually supports um, a pre-selected set of compilers like GCC, Clang, or MSVC, or IR compiler. But there is a work we're doing for some time already when we try to bring some format it would be uh it will be something like yaml format where you can actually describe the things uh, cline needs from the compiler and just put this file to cline and say hey this is my compiler so and the cline will just work with this custom compiler using this information so you just provide you know the uh, compiler features the header search paths the defines and then cline will just uh, use them and this is called the custom compiler support so we're working on that for a while already so trying to bring some reasonable format and to, you know, so that you can actually collect and uh, bring all this information to C-Line. We're also trying to build some examples because we do realize that it's not that simple probably to, you know, to build this file because it includes many, many in, uh, pieces of information. So we uh, we do our best to provide some examples, at least for known and reasonable compilers that we uh, know that people will be using in that way. Um, yeah, so there are more things in the roadmap, like uh, some uh, pain points in the debugger we plan to address, like the long STL types and show as array mode for pointers and some others. So you can actually check uh, out the full plan in the blog post. Uh, I just mentioned a few most interesting. Um, so, yeah, I don't know, Phil, are you expecting something interesting from us? <laughs> <laughs> uh, I'm actually just enjoying being able to watch from the outside this time around. <laughs> it's, okay. it's a different perspective. So, yeah, I'm, I'm just yeah. watching it as it comes out. I don't have anything in particular I'm, I'm looking for at the moment. So, Yeah, yeah but just... you know where the tracker is. <laughs> <laughs> yes, I do. Yeah, they can put anything in. Yeah, and maybe to wrap up for um, today, for our and finally section, mm -hmm. I actually um, have also JetBrains think today because, um, yeah, we just found out that exactly 10 years ago, we started officially the C++ support in our tools. And it was not the C-Line, C-Line is much younger. Yeah. It was an app code. And we actually first announced it uh, in... Um, in August, 10 years ago. And I found this blog post, I was actually preparing for some internal gathering we had uh, in the team, some online gathering for the team just to 
uh, help everyone to you know to to learn what's going on in the project and i was uh, since we have quite many new people uh, who arrived at uh, who actually joined the team and who probably don't know how the whole story started i was digging into how everything started and i found this blog post written by our current uh, ceo max shafirov and he was working in the appcut project at the time and it was this um nice uh actually um post there saying about the c++ support in app code and it was not planned actually that's the most mm -hmm. funniest thing that we actually started doing app code if you don't know it's an id for ios and mac development so it uh, at that time it mostly supported uh, the, the objective c and objective c++ so swift was not there at the time uh so and when we started doing the objective c and objective c++ realized that we need a support for macros in Objective-C++ and then we need the Astel support and some more and some more. Mm -hmm. So we added the CBB, uh, C++ completion and some support for C++11 features and like implement an override for C++ code. And only when we actually introduced the Google test support in some version, I don't remember exactly, but it was something like 1.6 or something like that version of app code we actually realized that we are working on a C++ support and we became quite serious about that. Um, I mean, like became serious, but after that we wrote a nice uh, blog post for the April full day talking about the C++ ID and all, mostly all the commands under this blog post were about how um, excited the people were about the C++ ID. So we realized that that's no, no longer a joke. <laughs> we have to do that. And so that's how the whole idea actually of C-Line started. So, and yeah, that, that, that blog post, um, I really like that. And when I found it, I was nicely surprised that it's exactly the 10 years. So uh, for C++ support in our tools, yeah. And um, I was just... Uh, Posting a few tweets this month with um, like this thing to celebrate exactly uh, on uh, August 25. But I was also posting some, um, you know, nice memories from the project, like the first sea line demo, which was done uh, in September uh, 2013. It was called CPPID at the time, and it was done in Malma uh, at JetBrains event day there. And it was quite basic things which were shown there, mostly coming from this app code implementation. And I also shared a nice tweet with uh, the names were actually considered for C-Line. And there are a whole bunch of, you know, uh, quite weird names. I would say that for me as a C++ developer, they're quite fine. Like the Void Star or the Hack Speak, they're okay. Or like C-Trade, which is definitely okay for me. But he realized that uh, maybe it's not for everyone. <laughs> Some of them are really weird. And I'm happy we came up with the C-Line name, <laughs> not the hack speak. Um, yeah, I don't, um, I don't know if you have any comments on that. No. <laughs> I did have a look at that, uh, that video, actually, that's linked from the tweet that I'll, I'll put in the show notes. And yeah, the, the, it's a, a video of the screen, so it's, it's difficult to see. Yeah. But... <laughs> Yeah, it just strikes me just how different the that initial version of the the ID looked to to what we have today. And I did yeah. have um, a license for the very first version of AppCode. Uh, I bought that out of my own money at the time <laughs> when I was doing iOS development. Yeah, it's come a long way. So. Yeah, that's true. Nice that's to look true. back. <laughs> yeah. Okay. Well, I think we should uh, we should wrap up there. But be, before we do go, I just want to mention one thing, which is that. Uh, a couple of times now we have 
uh, slipped on our monthly schedule sort of to the beginning of the following month. And part of the reason for that is because uh, we tend to collect a lot of the information that we, we talk about towards the end of the month, particularly um, on the, the, the standards uh, schedule, which tend to have things right at the end of the month. So it is quite tight packing it in. So what we decided to do is just make that official. And we're going to uh, record and release the, um, the future ap- episodes at the beginning of the following month. So uh, we don't have to say that we're late anymore. That's that's really the only change. <laughs> <laughs> Hopefully. <laughs> well, yes. <Yeah. laughs> Challenge accepted. Anyway, <laughs> with that, I think we'll, we'll, we'll say goodbye and uh, see you next time. Yeah, Bye. see you. Bye.